Good morning, Your Honor. Good morning, Senator Cornyn. You know, most of us have multiple notebooks and notes and books and things like that in front of us. Can you hold up what you've been referring to and answering our questions? Is there anything on it? Uh, that letterhead that says United States Senate. That's, imp that's impressive. Well, Judge, um, the best I can understand the objections to your nomination are not to your qualifications, your experience, or training, but it's that you have or you will violate your oath of office. I find that terribly insulting. They suggest that you can't be unbiased in deciding a case you haven't even participated in yet. I find that insulting as well. You know, almost as, maybe almost as pernicious as attacking somebody for their faith and suggesting that that disqualifies them from holding a public office is the attack that's being made on judicial independence, something that uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist, among others, observed the crown jewels of the American Constitution and the American system. But I want to just take a little walk down memory lane here. You know, there are a lot of a lot of people who guessed how judges would actually rule on cases, and almost always they've been spectacularly wrong. I was struck by, uh, by just a couple. Uh, Harry Truman said, whenever you put a man, and that, he's talking about a man, but a man or woman on the Supreme Court, he ceases to be your friend. He said some more colorful things, too. But Theodore Roosevelt said about Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., he said, I could carve out, a out of a banana a judge with more backbone than that. And as I think about people like Harry Blackman, nominated by Richard Nixon, who wrote Roe versus Wade, as I think about Warren Burger, you know, they were called the Minnesota Twins, and obviously over time they became sort of polar opposites on the court. I think about the attacks on Neil Gorsuch for his unwillingness to make a, a prior commitment on LGBT issues. He wrote the Bostock case extending Title VII of the Civil Rights Act to gay or transgender individuals. Obviously, those predictions were wrong. And then, since we're talking about the ACA, it's the ACA versus ACB, I guess. Chief Justice Roberts was the one who wrote the opinion upholding the Affordable Care Act, as you know. So I would just say that all of these predictions about how judges under our independent judiciary will make decisions are just pure speculation. But I think they're worse than speculation. I think they're propaganda in order to try to make a political point. So, Judge, you're not willing to make a deal 
No, Senator Cornyn, I'm not willing to make a deal, not with the committee, not with the president, not with anyone. I'm independent. I just uh, would like to hear maybe some of your thoughts on, in the Oberfell case, which established, as you said, a constitutional right to same-sex marriage, part of that decision struck down the Defense of Marriage Act, correct? Uh, yes, I believe so. That was a bill that Joe Biden voted for? I don't know well, about that. I, I do. Okay. Joe, Joe Biden voted for it, Pat Leahy, and Bill Clinton signed it into law. Can you just, I'm not asking you to get into the details, but just sort of differentiate for everybody listening what the approach of a legislator is in voting for a piece of legislation as opposed to the role of a judge in interpreting the constitutionality of a, of a, of a piece of legislation. Are they the same or are they different? They're quite different. Um, a judge isn't expressing a policy view. You know, I, I tell my students in constitutional law that newspapers do courts a disservice when, you know, they say things like, you know, court um, favors same-sex marriage or, you know, just giving the headline without showing any of the reasoning that goes into it. Because courts are not just expressing a policy preference. They're digging in. They're looking at the precedent. They're looking at the Constitution. And even when the result cuts against policy preferences, Judges are obliged to follow them. I suspect that this body doesn't cast votes that conflict with their policy preferences. Well, that's right. And the difference between us and you is uh, you don't run for election. That's right. You don't run on a platform. You don't say, if I'm confirmed, I'm going to do this or that. You don't do that, do you? It would be wholly, wildly inappropriate for me to do so. Well, your mentor. Justice Scalia said something back in 2005 that I, I find intriguing but reassuring. He said, if you're going to be a good and faithful judge, you have to resign yourself to the fact that you're not always going to like the conclusions you reach. If you like them all the time, you're probably doing something wrong. Do you agree with that? And if you do, would you explain what you mean? I do agree with that, and that you know has been my experience on the Seventh Circuit so far. It's your job to pass the statutes. It's your job to choose policy. And then it's my job to uh, interpret those laws and apply them to facts of particular cases. And they don't always lead me to results that I would reach if I were you know queen of the world, and I could say, you win, you lose, or this is how I want it to be, because I just don't have the power by fiat to impose my policy preferences or choose the result I prefer. That's just not my role. I've got to go with what you guys have chosen. Well, why in the world would the American people surrender their right to govern themselves through their elected representatives and through the Constitution to nine people who don't even run for election and who serve for life. Why in the world would, should the American people do that? Well, I think part of the rationale for courts adhering to the rule of law and for judges taking great care to avoid imposing their policy preferences is that it's inconsistent with democracy. Nobody wants to live in accord with the law of Amy. I'm sure you, my children don't even want to do that. So I can't, as a judge, get up on the bench and say, you're going to live by my policy preferences because I have life tenure and you can't kick me out if you don't like them. 
Well, thankfully, uh, under the Constitution, even if the Supreme Court strikes down a statute, Congress can come back and revisit that topic and do so in a way that doesn't violate the Constitution as determined by the court. And ultimately, it doesn't happen very often in our history, but ultimately we can amend the Constitution itself, correct? That is correct. So the, the basis of legitimacy of governmental power is consent of the governed. Do you agree with that? I do agree with that. Not what nine people in black robes, the high nine on the Potomac, I think they're sometimes called, the decisions they make. Those are, that's not the final word in our form of government, correct? We are a, a, a law, um, a government of laws, not of men. Well, Judge Barrett, I'm almost through, but I, I can't pass up the opportunity to ask you a question about the Establishment Clause. Uh, I did with uh, Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch as well. It's born out of my frustration. Uh, one of the couple of times I had a chance as Attorney General of Texas to argue before the Supreme Court, I argued in a case called Santa Fe Independent School District versus Doe. This was about a commonplace practice where before football games in Texas, students would volunteer to offer a, a invocation or an inspirational a poem or saying or something like that. The ACLU uh, sued the school district and obviously it made its way all the way, all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, and I'm not gonna ask you your opinion on the outcome of the case, but what troubles me the most, what troubled me the most about that experience is when the Supreme Court struck down uh, or held that practice unconstitutional and in violation of the Establishment Clause, Chief Justice Rehnquist said, the Constitution requires neutrality toward religion, but the court's approach sp speaks ho of hostility toward religion. Could you just talk a little bit about the Establishment Clause generally, with not in regard to any particular set of facts, but sort of what the, what the courts over time have tried to do to, to, uh, to enforce the mandate of the Constitution? Well, Senator Cornyn, when I interviewed for my job with Justice Scalia, he asked what area of the court's precedent that I thought you know, needed to be uh, better organized or that sort of thing. And off the cuff, I said, well, gosh, the First Amendment. And he said, well, what do you mean? And I fell down a rabbit hole of trying to explain without success, because it is a very complicated area of the law, um, how one might see one's way through the thicket of balancing the Establishment Clause against the Free Exercise Clause. It's a notoriously different, difficult area of the law. And to the extent that you know, there is tension in the court's cases, um, and I'm giving you no better an answer, I assure you, than I did to Justice Scalia that day, it's been something that the court has struggled with you know, for decades to try to come to a sensible way to apply both of those clauses. Well, I wish you well. Thank you, Senator. Mr. Chairman, I'm going to reserve the rest of my time. 